If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout time, both authors and their readers have gone to war. In that process, the written word has become both a deadly weapon and a glimmer of peace and hope. From Ian Fleming's adventure-packed James Bond novels to the furious printing efforts behind Mein Kampf. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Andrew Pettigrew traces the surprising and sometimes sinister ways in which the written word has shaped and been shaped by the conflicts of the last few centuries. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, it's a real pleasure to be back with you. So you've just written a new book called The Book at War, and it's all about readership, books, libraries in the time of conflict. So just to set us up a little bit, can you just tell us what sort of time period are we talking about here? Well, I think it's fair to say that as long as there has been any surface to write on, then people have been writing about the art of war. One of the most famous writings called The Art of War emanates from 6th century BC China. But it's also fair to say that the invention of printing in the 15th century vastly accelerated the amount of handbooks on war, drilling books, how to make fortifications, and so on and so forth. I would say the centre of gravity of this book is mostly the period, let's say, of mass literacy. The period from the middle of the 19th century onwards, where all the nation-states likely to be involved in major wars recognise the importance of carrying their population with them. So at that point, books on warfare and books inculcating warlike values moved out of the military colleges and into the general population. Now, one thing I think when we think of conflict, there seems to be a lot of damage to the literary culture of societies. How at risk of damage are collections of books during wartime? Very much so. Not least because in most cities and towns, the central library occupied prestige location in the middle of the city or the town. Now, that was not especially dangerous until the age of the bomber. And of course, artillery to some extent in the Franco-Prussian War and the First World War led to the destruction of libraries. But it was bombing, the idea that the bomber will always get through, that really transformed the, the level of damage that occurred to books. Now, 
This book began when I went to an exhibition in the Imperial War Museum where they were discussing the attempts to move paintings to safety during wartime and the way in which the National Gallery and the Imperial War Museum's own paintings were moved to places of safety. And I immediately thought, what about the books? What happens to books during war? But it's a, a much more difficult problem because artwork is often extremely valuable and each artwork is unique. Books are often printed in many thousands of copies, so no one book is unique. And that is both a strength and a weakness. It's a weakness because people were less inclined to move them away to public places of safety. They did so with the books from the first age of print, from the 15th and the 16th centuries. But the rest had to stay because it was recognised immediately that books were major resources when it came to waging war, and they were also vital for morale. You close a library and you limit immediately the general population's opportunity to find relaxation and some sort of respite from the horrors of war, from having your sons, daughters or husbands away fighting, or indeed being in the areas, being bombed and risking that every night. Could you perhaps tell us about some of the ways that books have offered comfort during wartime? Well, it's very interesting. One of the things that I was able to use was a wonderful series of surveys conducted in the war years by the organisation Mass Observation. And this was encouraged people to keep diaries, but then they sometimes sent them specific questions to answer, as they did on how much do you read. And it was a picture of of a topsy-turvy world where people who read a lot sometimes read very little in wartime, and people who had scarcely read, read a very great deal. To give you some examples, those of our troops and those of troops of other nations who captured and put in prisoner of war camps, they read an awful lot. And many people who had not been habitual readers, these were, after all, mostly young men in young adulthood, but they read a great deal. And among the books which are extremely popular were all the classics. The war was a time where you really could read a long book. So Charles Dickens was very popular. Also Anthony Trollope, he was extremely well read. And people could actually get their way through war and peace. So there was a point at which in the Second World War, because paper was short, we'll probably come on to that, when people couldn't get new copies of the War and Peace. It was out of print in Great Britain. Those are people who are reading more. People who are reading less, often female readers. There was a sharp downturn in reading during the Blitz, when people were just too anxious to read, although many took books with them down into the shelters. And there were many women who were either called up for war work or, in the middle classes, lost their maid or cook and found themselves doing housework for the first time in their lives. And this took up, as one diarist said, when we lost the maid, all the time I had for reading has been lost since then. When you add to that voluntary work on behalf of the war and a queuing for food, you get a situation where particularly many women had much less time for reading than they had before the war. 
there's one thing I'd like to touch on before we maybe move on to, to talk a little bit about the reading habits a bit more. Can you just tell us about how books or perhaps the written word has been used to inspire hope? Well, I think I'm trying to take us down a new path. Most of the readers of this book will be far more bookish than they are warlike. And so there is an expectation that books are always a force for good in society. And you see that whenever an attempt is made to close a library or a branch library, many people who don't use libraries themselves habitually, who buy their own books, are nevertheless outraged by this closing of libraries. So libraries and books are somewhat sacred objects to us. And so pointing out that not all books are a force for good and are sometimes put to direct use in wartime will not necessarily appeal to some people who want to know more about this subject. So you get two different things there. You get books being used as technical resources in warfare. Science depends on literature. So does intelligence. The famous historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who was an intelligence officer during the war, said that 90% of the useful information you get in intelligence comes from open sources. That is things like newspapers, telephone directories, other documents. One German spy in, in England just before the war worked out where all the major chemical works were by getting a copy of the ICI football team fixtures. So that gave away quite an unexpected information. So you get that direct use and particularly maps and atlases because you find the belligerents fighting a lot of conflict in places they know nothing about. When the Americans were attacked in 1941 at Pearl Harbor, they had to put out an appeal for anyone who had holiday snaps or booklets about the Pacific Islands, because they had no idea anything about the places that they would sh shortly be sending their troops to fight on. So that's, if you like, what the Librarian of Congress said when he said that books are the munitions of war. And there's a very strong element of that. The other element is sort of surreptitious indoctrination. The sort of books, magazines particularly, which in the 19th century in the run-up to the war, what caused little boys to grow up into the sort of people who, in 1914, would hurry along to the recruiting centres to volunteer for what became the trenches. Between the war, you get the Biggles novels of W.E. Johns, which made every young adult in Britain want to be a fighter pilot in the, in the Second World War. So books play quite an important role before you get on to the sort of deliberate propaganda material that governments, all of them, fermented during the 20th century wars. As you've said, books aren't solely this sort of tragic victim of conflict. How dangerous would you say they have been in perhaps inciting this sense of violence, conflict, perhaps even spreading more hateful ideologies? That's very important. I think you have to look at the literature of war in three stages. You get before, during and after. 
And the literature of the the pity of war, the uh, what a waste sort of literature, generally speaking, comes a decade after the conflict, when people are beginning to feel that peace has come and so you can ventilate those feelings. During the war, I think that virtually all the professional groups involved in the book industries, the publishers, the authors, readers, are all in the 20th century wars, with very few exceptions, very much taken up with doing their bit for the patriotic cause, much as lawyers are, much as judges are, much as librarians and academics. Academics, on the whole, needed no persuading to support their own country in wartime, even though in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge a few years before the war, more than half the members of the laboratory signed a petition saying that they would never allow their work to be used for warlike intent. Well, of course, that didn't last and up to 1939. As for before... I think that's, this is most evident in the age of imperialism, before the outbreak of the First World War, at the soft level, with things like the Boys' Own Paper, which is uh, bizarrely published by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, but uh, this sort of muscular Christianity was extremely common. And, you know, it's full of young men heroes who are out in the rest of the world fighting for their right and and goodness as well as the British Empire. When you think how conservative most of the, the readers were, on the whole, adolescents in those days wanted to fit in rather than to be different. And there is a very poignant moment when a young man is asked in 1914, why have you signed up? And he said, well, I've read the same magazines as all the other boys did. And that's that. And then you also got on both sides of any potential conflict, all this competition to to be top dog. And then there were a series of novels anticipating, first of all, the French would invade. And then when we signed a treaty of friendship with France, the Germans were going to invade. And these sorts of novels were extremely popular and in some respects influential in forcing the governments before 1914 to engage in ever more serious rearmament against the anticipated enemy, Germany. The worst aspect of this, I think, the most bloodshilling, is the poets who, up to the war, were beginning to think in terms of Europe having been made decadent by prosperity. And they began to talk of the cleansing power of war, how war would be a good thing because it would make the nation stronger again. It's, it's virtually impossible to, to conceive of this now. But there are figures to suggest that, you know, sort of 95% of poetry, a lot of it was written. This was a very poetic age. But the overwhelming proportion at that stage of the war, oh, the run-up to the war and then the months after the outbreak of war, were strongly in support of the war. How much of it can we say was conscious propaganda and how much of it was just a product of its time and the mindset of the time? Well, I think it's always true that the best propaganda is 
not recognisable as propaganda, or at least is not written as propaganda. Some of the best and most effective propaganda of the era, you think of George Orwell's Animal Farm, which struggled to find a publisher in 1945 because, of course, Stalin was our ally at that point, but became one of the great publishing successes of the, that day, likewise 1984. And the novels uh, of Ian Fleming, the James Bond novels, these were incredibly effective at presenting this image. You know, remember in post-war Britain, we were bankrupt, we were finding it difficult, having to divest ourselves of most of our possessions overseas. And this figure, James Bond, as the ideal Englishman, was enormously successful. And then that success multiplied as soon as films were, were made. And although the intelligence services of Britain didn't rattle the Russians one bit, not least because they had well-placed agents of their own in those intelligence services, nevertheless, James Bond seems to have uh, rattled their cage quite a lot. It was regarded, along with the early novels of John le Carré and Graham Greene, it was regarded as required reading if you were a Russian spy. And they attempted to counteract James Bond's influence by having Russia and the satellite nations like East Germany have their own James Bond figures who, of course, dispatched British agents with the sort of insouciance that James managed on our account. So it's very interesting, but propaganda is best when it's not written as propaganda, is the honest answer. Leading on from James Bond, what other ways has textual material been used to undermine enemy morale? Well, there was a lot of attempt at this, and it's amazing how many bombers at the beginning of the Second World War were equipped not with bombs and incendiaries, but with leaflets, which were dropped down on the populations of Germany and then from 1940 onwards, the occupied powers, saying, we are not your enemy, your enemy is the Nazis, we understand the German people are a good people, it's just that you need to get rid of them. And that even went down to the battalion level, in what became the, the sort of fixed line at Monte Cassino in Italy, troops are sort of bogged down for several months in, in brutal fighting. So they occupy the days in which they're not attempting an assault by taking the explosives out of a shell, stuffing in 200 or so leaflets and firing them over to the opposite side. On the English side, trying to persuade the Germans, that while they're here, their wives and girlfriends are being ravished by foreign workers in Germany. And the Germans then fired back ones aimed at, for instance, the Indian forces in the front line, say, why are you fighting with the war for Britain? Don't you realise that they're putting you in the front line all the time while they're hanging back? Unfortunately, because the detachments changed round so quickly, this was fired over and was retrieved by one of the English county regiments. So, I mean, not all of it gets right. And then it was sort of replies to replies when the Germans sent back a leaflet saying, thanks for sending all these leaflets over. You know the paratroopers 
are, are pretty tough, but we, we're running out of toilet paper, so they've come in very handy. So there was a strong sense that this didn't work. Nevertheless, right up till 1945, and this is, of course, more, more sinister and deadly, the Allies were dropping these leaflets on towns which were about to be bombed to say to anyone still there, you've got 12 hours to get out of town because otherwise you, you'll be in danger. And, of course, many of the people weren't free to move because of the troops who were guarding them. The Allies had more success with a daily German-language newspaper which was dropped on German lines after the invasion of Normandy. And it was quite obvious that this did have some impact because a lot of those who surrendered had copies of these leaflets or newspapers in their pocket. Apparently, one uh, surrendered German went up to his captors and said, have you got the latest issue of this? As if he was a sort of subscriber to it. So a lot of effort is given into this. And it's often materials that we wouldn't necessarily think of immediately as books, which was printed leaflets, printed pamphlets, and printed broadsheets, which could just fly down. And this continued in the Cold War, perhaps not so successfully when the West tried to send Bibles behind the Iron Curtain attached to balloons. So when the balloons ran out of puff, they would just sort of come down wherever. But this simply littered the Czech countryside with Bibles, which the shepherds minding their sheep were utterly baffled by. So the Czech government just said, wrote and said, would you stop this? You know, there's a real litter problem here, and they did. So people are ingenious and come up with all sorts of ways to try and use the capacities of print to reach people. Actually, I think BBC Radio was much, much more successful than was all these printed efforts. Something else that might be quite sinister or perhaps quite underhand when it comes to changing the mindset of a populace, perhaps the enemy, perhaps of your own people, is the idea of censorship. Where does this come into the story and in what ways were the written word censored? Well, you're quite right, Emily. Censorship is an important tool in warfare. I think its negative connotations are seen much more with newspapers and, and perhaps the radio than they are in books, though censorship existed in all the belligerent powers. And there's less difference than one might imagine between the dictatorships and the democracies in this respect. It is accepted that there will be censorship, if only to limit operational information being shared. But I honestly don't think in the Second World War it has as much impact as one might imagine, partly because although it's deprecated in Germany and illegal and could be deadly to listen to the BBC, most people seem to have been doing it. The only way of dealing with this was, as the Russians did, to confiscate all radios in private possession. So that when they listened to the radio, they listened to the radio in loudspeakers spread around Moscow and other towns. Personally, I think the most effective form of censorship was control over paper. In Britain, the supply of paper was dropped to something like, at its lowest, 30% of pre-war availability, which meant that all publishers had to take 
very serious decisions about what they were going to publish. Now, it wasn't as if, generally speaking, they wanted to publish anti-government material because they were all themselves committed to the war effort. Even Stanley Unwin, who was famously a, a pacifist, as he had been during the First World War as well. So that meant people took careful decisions about what they were going to put in the public domain. But there was plenty, plenty of literature about current campaigns. First, the, the Russian attack on Finland, that attracted a lot of attention. Then we got a wave of books about Poland, then a wave of books about the fall of France and why it occurred. And there was no real attempt to, to stop this. One of the most extraordinary aspects of the Second World War is that the first full published edition of Mein Kampf came out only, I think, in 1938-1939. And it was issued as a book, but also as a sort of magazine, in 18 weekly excerpts. Now, the cover of this is very carefully written. It says, all proceeds will be given to the Red Cross. And, of course, it was the Red Cross who was providing books for another sustenance, the prisons of war. So that was sort of, we're firing back Mein Kampf at the Germans. But the, Mein Kampf was a recommended book in all of the British Army camp libraries. Now, think about that. They clearly think that the more people are acquainted with this, sometimes bizarre and certainly malignant book, that the more persuaded they will be of the need to fight against Germany. And it seems to have worked. Whereas on the other side, prison of war camps in Germany, Winston Churchill's books were banned. So there is a very interesting contrast there between how the two adversarial powers deal with this. You mentioned there Winston Churchill, and I think this is something we should probably talk about, that some of the notable leaders, particularly of the Second World War, started their careers as writers, librarians, collectors. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about how this interest, their work, influenced their leadership? Well, it is, Emily, as you point out, a, a very striking point about the Second World War, how bookish the various leaders were. Adolf Hitler, with probably the book that shaped ideology most directly in Germany, which had sold nine million copies by the end of the war, many of them ended up as fuel in German stoves at the end of the war, but that's another matter. Winston Churchill had earned money from books right back to his young adulthood with his account of fighting in the Boer War and his escape from captivity, which was a bestseller, made him a lot of money. He also won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1956 for his History of the Second World War, though I think it was probably for his leadership as much as his, his, his writing. Charles de Gaulle wrote a very influential text on tank warfare, which was virtually immediately translated into German and probably influenced the Germans more than it did his own side. Then you get Stalin, who had originally, before he became a revolutionary, intended to be an academic. And how that would have changed the world if he'd gone off to teach in, quietly in some Jesuit college somewhere. And of course, after the war, they were all put in the shadow by Chairman Mao with his little red book, 
of which something like a billion copies were distributed. Absolutely extraordinary. So yes, these were people who in their lives recognized the power of words. And I should add to that Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, although he, he was not a great author of books, was a bookish individual. He put together a splendid collection of books at his home in Albany and actually probably was a natural newspaper man. So in, in many ways, Roosevelt, who was the least published, was the most able communicator of the lot. Now, this is perhaps a bit of a reflective question, but would you say the meanings and values of these particular leaders' works have changed with hindsight, perhaps seeing it after the wars? Yes, I think hindsight has been an important element in the literary writing on war. You see this both in that wave of books which come between, let's say, 1929 and 1933, not least All Quiet on the Western Front, one of the great wartime books, but it's not a book written in the war itself when people were far more likely to be reading adventure stories. John Buchan's books were extremely popular, but you get this wave after the First World War, and that, to some extent, begins to influence political behaviour. And the reluctance of Britain to rearm has a great deal to do with this sense that the First World War had been a, a, a terrible folly. So you get books of that sort, very influential post-war. I would say, however, the one thing that the democracies learned from the First World War is that dealing with pacifism with a light touch is the sensible approach rather than sending people to prison and treating them very badly. That's what happened in the First World War. And in the Second World War, there was far less of that. People were allowed to do civilian jobs or non-combatant regiments. Um, and in that respect, there was not a lot of post-war complaining about the way in which pacifists had been treated. But, you know, pacifism only really becomes a live and important political force during the Cold War, when the threat of nuclear annihilation gives it a far broader appeal to voters and to citizens. So I think circumstances change and therefore events change with them. I don't think one can trace a particular change in the reputation of Winston Churchill or Roosevelt or Hitler or Stalin after their deaths. The public perception was was very much set. I mean, you must remember that Winston Churchill, as prime minister, as war leader, was turfed out unceremoniously of power in 1945 by a huge majority. And it was a reminder that people were keen to win the war, keen to get it over, keen to survive it, and most of all to see that the social change that they feel, felt that they had earned was brought into effect. And they hadn't forgiven the Conservative government for the situation that had led them to the, to the need to give their lives for this situation. So I think when we're talking about the leaders themselves, I don't think their reputations were much 
damaged by their writing. They were pretty set personalities. I mean, Churchill was quite old. Stalin was quite close to the end of his life. And it's really only de Gaulle, of the ones I've mentioned, who had the chance to reshape himself and his reputation with a whole new post-war career. Now, as a final question to you, drawing on what we've spoken about, what do you think all of these different aspects can tell us about the value of the written word when it comes to times of conflict? That's a very, very good question. And I think what it tells us about the value of the written word is just how many different aspects of life it influences. I mean, books were hugely important to both people left behind and missing key members of their family and people, many troops, who found themselves in remote postings all over the world where actually there was very little action. Now, if you look at the number of people in all the combatant armies, the proportion that actually had combat experience is really rather small. I've mentioned the importance for, of topography in stimulating war and allowing people to follow it. Everyone had maps. Newspapers gave them away so they could follow the, the front. And we talked about science and intelligence. But I think there's one point I haven't made which I would like to make. And that is that we can regret the destruction of libraries. And by the time that libraries were being destroyed in huge numbers, for instance, in Germany, they had largely been stripped of the rare books. The books from the first age of printing were taken off to secure storage. Unfortunately for the Germans, because the bombs were coming from the West, from England and then from the American airfields in, in France later in the war, uh, they sent their books east and not taking into account that the borders would move westward so that most of the main library in Berlin's books, the Staatsbibliothek, ended up in salt mines and castles in what became either East Germany or Czechoslovakia, and those were just taken, never came back. Many were taken to Russia. But if we take out that slim stratum of very rare books then this is one of the reasons why libraries can always be regenerated. Because the books taken out of libraries, either because of censorship or persecution or bombs, they may have lost a lot of their stock, but many copies of those books are still in individual hands. And this is one of the strange things about books, that normally... Let's say you send a bombing raid over a town, enormous damage to housing, to buildings, to churches, to libraries, very expensive to repair. The cost of destruction is much less than the cost of rebuilding. On the other hand, if you think of books, you're going in a lot of trouble to destroy books, and this is the case in Ukraine at the moment, that copies can be regenerated by publishing very cheaply or there are still many copies in private hands. So, in a way, the economics are very much on the side of the printed word here. That it's, I mean, the whole history of libraries throughout history has been one of building, disruption, a dispersal, reconstruction, 
most of the libraries of, of history only last a generation or two generations, but that's because people want to have their own books in their libraries. And we're going through one of those periods of turbulence again now. But it does mean that the power of the written word is very difficult to extinguish. That was Andrew Pettigrew, Bishop Wardlaw Professor of History at the University of St Andrews. His book, The Book at War, Libraries and Readers in an Age of Conflict, is out now, published by Profile Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? 
You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.